last evening at this time was a, a very different world, if you recall. But you don't know the half of it. Uh, right before the time for sitting and giving a talk, uh, we, we met with Bob T, who runs the physical plant. And the meeting was something like out of the uh, meeting in the captain's quarters in the Titanic, <laughs> where we were informed that there was a very good chance there would be no water, no electricity. Uh, and then there was a whole long list of uh, emergency measures that I was supposed to read out to you. And I convinced him that he better do it, because I didn't even know what half of it meant, uh, including some rather unusual and unique way of disposing waste products. <laughs> but then all of our collected good karma came together, and lights went on and we have this beautiful day and I'm sure we would have gotten through it but uh, there was a real concern we left off the other evening <clears throat> was just a, uh, a brief summary of the background or the foundation. One way of looking at the foundation that would be necessary and helpful to be able to do choiceless awareness. It's not the only way to do it. And in fact, all I was talking about is what our practice is, what we do anyway. Um, so we left off uh, recognizing that uh, our practice, in addition to calming the mind, uh, then gives us experience in taking that mind that's more calm, clear, and directing it towards the experience of our life, whatever comes up in the body and in the mind and in the outer world as well, uh, little by little becoming more acquainted with ourselves. Because uh, to begin with, from a Dharma point of view, although common sense might not agree with it, we're all intimate strangers with ourselves. In one sense, who could know us ourselves better than ourselves? But when you go more deeply into this, I think you'll see that it's not an exaggeration to understand that we have a, uh, a strange relationship with what we're willing to know and deal with and what we're not. Uh, and we approach that kind of self-knowing by equipping ourselves, strengthening the mind, becoming more familiar, with all kinds of mind states, physical conditions, beginning to look more deeply into it and seeing the changing, empty nature of it, the work of vipassana. And as the mind becomes more stable, uh, something you can really rely upon, count upon, uh, then perhaps one direction would be, let's say if you're working with the breath, uh, to move into choiceless awareness. It's not by any means the only way to practice or the only way to liberation. It's not the way, but it is a way, and it's uh, for some a very good way. If you just did choiceless awareness, if you read the sutta, it's very clear from the Buddha's teaching that you can use the breathing to go all the way to liberation. In other words, it's not necessary to drop the breath. 
So even in the deepest stages of cessation, letting go, and so forth, um, there can be the breath accompanying you into that liberation. In true choiceless awareness, even the breath is not special. That's the whole point. You don't set anything up as headquarters. Uh, and there was many of you, uh, perhaps most of you know what choiceless awareness is. You've perhaps uh, heard it here or heard it in different traditions. Something like it is in Soto Zen and uh, Dzogchen. If you've read Krishnamurti, that's all he's talking about. And it's in Vipassana as well. A lot of Ajahn Chah's teachings are a very uh, simple, unassuming way of tapping the same thing. This morning, in the guided meditation, we began to open the field of attention to include not only the breathing, but sounds and the body. You recall bodily sensations. And you're welcome right now to finish the job. Just let the mind in. Of course, it's always been there. But I mean, now officially, it's admitted. Yeah. And, um, and here, let's say if you're practicing choiceless awareness, oops, excuse me, uh, Anapanasati, while you're with the breath, you can practice what is called in Thailand the condensed method. That is, you're anchored in the breath, and from that place, it's on the way to choiceless awareness in a certain sense, in that you loosen your grip on the breathing a bit, and you're with whatever turns up as you breathe in and as you breathe out. Now, that also can be a transition into choiceless awareness. Uh, for those of you who would like to do it or who, ha who know what I'm talking about. I mean, uh, it's, an, it's called the old yogi's retreat. Uh, it means experience. It doesn't mean how many gray hairs we have, that you've done a few retreats. But uh, what's an old yogi? I don't know. I mean, I think we're all, we're all quite a bit. We're babies, baby yogis. Uh, and some of you may not fully know what I'm talking about, especially if you're new to IMS. Um, but I think as the next few days unfold, it'll become clear. So uh, bear with us. Uh, see it as some seeds, something to reflect on. One way of practice, and this is done in the Tibetan tradition, uh, as well as uh, in uh, Vipassana and the Theravadan tradition, is that at a certain point you can change your relationship to the breathing so that you are... I'm using a rough figure, like 25% of your attention is with the breathing, and you allow for a real openness, a real playfulness, in other words, for whatever is to happen to happen, you really allow for it. But you're with the breath, it's becoming less and less of a technique. It's a technique with a small t now. It's a kind of tentative relationship to it, uh, and including at a certain point, it just uh, drops away altogether, or you let it. Uh, it just, you know, it, it no longer is special. It'll still be there as part of what's going on. But it's no longer an anchor, a place to center yourself in, etc., etc. Primary object. It's just the breath amidst everything else, and, and that's the choiceless awareness. That's part, that's, those are the materials, the beginnings of choiceless awareness. As I'm using the term, choiceless in the sense of no agenda. The agenda is provided to us by life, by living. I'll give you a few examples, and it's not limited to the cushion. And it's choiceless in that we, uh, we learn how to meet whatever turns up in a non-judgmental way. 
We're not choosing to be for or against whatever it is. Uh, applications may make uh, it clear. Let's say uh, doing walking meditation. M uh, many, if not most of us, think of walking meditation as focusing on the feet or focusing on the legs, uh, sometimes focusing on the breath, the whole body. Uh, you can do natural walking. I know uh, we've encouraged you to in other retreats to just do the loop and uh, bring your attention into the body, in the breathing, uh, to use that to uh, center you, to keep you uh, in the moment, and then just walk. Uh, in choiceless awareness, e even that goes. So you just walk. You just be natural, take a walk, and you just see what's there. That's it. I mean, some people are looking at me like, The first chapter is the last chapter. That's it. You're walking, and now there's a good chance that one of the things that will be there is the sense of the body, of course, as you're walking. But it's not that you establish it in a prearranged way, that I will focus on the body or I'll stay with the breathing as I walk. You just walk, and you see what's there. And uh, what's there is what's there. I don't know. That'll change from moment to moment. Now, the reason that those instructions are not given out very often is not because people around here are stingy. It's because it can feed delusion very, very easily, where people, I'm just uh, walking with what's there. And in the meantime, you're just spinning out, a daydreaming, fantasizing, and so forth. For the mind to really uh, be that natural, I mean, it sounds strange, but we have to work awfully hard to do nothing. In other words, we have to do a lot of something to get to the point where we don't have to do nothing. That does, it's not good English, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, and it isn't rigid. For example, for my own practice, this was a number of years ago, uh, taking a walk along the Charles River in Cambridge on a very beautiful day, much like this. There was the river, uh, crew going up and down, there was beautiful trees and uh, people walking, bicycling, on the grass. Glorious day, and so my awareness was much more panoramic. I was experiencing the walking, and it was sort of a, a global kind of attentiveness, all-inclusive. Light. There was nothing in particular that I was focused on. And then suddenly, there's a, on the road, there's a car turned over. Uh, Charles River is right next to a highway. Um, there's a car turned over, and there's a person lying on the ground, and there people gathering towards that person. So that it's not like I had to uh, have a conference call or anything and call up my teacher, you know, like, what do I do now? Uh, life is the teacher, and suddenly that panoramic awareness becomes very focused on just that situation. That's really what was there. Someone lying on the ground, car turned over. It's not that I have to keep in touch with the birds going chirp, chirp, and the Charles River. Uh, it's. Uh, like that, in a, in a second, in a breath, in a moment, uh, life has told me what, the correct, what correct action is. And so, in this kind of training, when you're doing it as when you're sitting, uh, as I think we, uh, was mentioned last, uh, a couple of evenings ago, you're getting practice in, uh, in dealing with uncertainty. The fact that you really don't know what's going to come up from moment to moment. Of course, that's always true, whether you call it choiceless awareness or not. But we don't give you a particular something to stabilize yourself in, but rather you, you just you sit and you're just yourself. 
You sit there and you're just yourself. Uh, sometimes when I give these instructions out, uh, the looks on people's faces, and often they'll also say, uh, is that it? Yeah, just, be, just, sit, just sit and be yourself. What does it bring up in you? I mean, sometimes our mind is so purposive, so calculating, so project-oriented, that when it hears that, it either is, uh, think it feels cheated, uh, or I couldn't have heard this correctly, or there's got to be more to it than this. Actually, there's less to it. That's what, that's what gives it its power. Um, so you might, when you start to do it, if you see, see what that brings up in you, to have no instructions. The instructions are minimal. It's kind of sitting, in one sense, it's sitting without a purpose. Now, when we sit, typically we have a purpose. I would say pretty much when we sit waiting for the dentist, we have a purpose. We sit waiting for uh, a train, we have a purpose. We sit on a plane. Uh, a lot of times we sit driving a car. We have a real purpose. We have a destination, a schedule, maybe a sense of time. Am I there yet? We've been driving for half an hour. Oh, there's a marker, Barry. Oh, great, we're almost there. Uh, familiar little farmhouse. Uh, you look at your watch. Uh, so it, it's full of time. But when you sit with, without a purpose, as choiceless awareness is, there's no purpose than just to be there with whatever's there. And you with what's there, not because the Buddha said so, or Freud or Jung or whoever. I'm looking at a psychotherapist, so that's what came into my mind. I'm very impressionable tonight. Okay. <laughs> uh, you with what's there because that's what's there. That's what your life is in that moment. So it couldn't be more ordinary. It couldn't be more simple. And, um, as, but it's not something... You have to be careful before you do it because... As I say, it's, it's very, very easy for it to uh, be a field of delusion uh, where you're just hanging out in yourself and really not much is happening. Now, it isn't an all or nothing thing. It's not so either you do choiceless awareness and you're so perfectly stable and calm uh, that you do that or else you don't bother at all. Because the truth is, all of us, t to my knowledge, certainly myself, we begin with something far less than choiceless awareness. It's kind of simulated. Because any attempt to do nothing is not nothing. You know, as you're doing something in trying to do nothing. So how do you get out of that? You have to start seeing how you're still doing something. And in the seeing of all these somethings that, is, that are trying to be nothing, they fall away and there's genuine nothing. <laughs> The first time it happened to me was not during formal teaching. The bell rang, and so sitting was over. This was many years ago. And finally, it just happened. I was doing it. But just, to, just to a moment before the bell, I was trying to do it, and it was, I was just tripping all over myself. Um, In our practice here, uh, you can do, uh, it's not one size fits all. Corrado and I are uh, really receptive to getting to know you and to find out what's the best way for you to practice right here and right now. And sometimes uh, spending a lot of time with the body, sometimes exclusive attention to the breathing. 
a lot of it, spending a good deal of the retreat in, with samadhi practice would be the best way for you to use your, your time. At other times, it may be uh, a particular facet of the whole mind-body process that is uh, where you uh, practice mainly. And that's fine, too. At other times, you may feel the mind feels rather quiet and stable. It doesn't mean there are no thoughts. But somehow, uh, the hindrances are not too powerful, hardly there. They don't have much pull over you. The mind is quieter. Uh, The breath is entering and exiting freely. It's not forced. It's a joy to be breathing. You're feeling a bit of calm. And at that point, you may just say, okay, just drop it all and just sit and uh, see what happens. The instructions for choiceless awareness are pretty simple. It's uh, just to sit right smack in the midst of your own experience and to see what that experience is. It's just, it's in a certain way, learning how to... Uh, it's, it's strange that we need a practice like this, but it, apparently we do. It's practicing how to just be yourself so that we can learn how to just be ourselves, how we can uh, admit uh, whatever turns up, can we allow it into our field of experience, can our capacity to experience the moment, can that extend itself? Can we, uh, this, our practice has to do with uh, receiving each moment without separation. And we can do that with certain kinds of content and we have a hard time with other kinds of content. And so, of course, uh, choiceless awareness is not going to be handed to us. In fact, one of the things you learn is how, how many choices you are making to steer away from that, to push that down, to dwell on this, to get away from that. Uh, intimations that are frightening, whoop, time to get tea, or whatever it is. And so there's a tremendous amount of learning that can come from this doing nothing. It's a brilliant invention, as is sitting. By taking everything away, now you're sitting, uh, in a sense, with no purpose, but to just know what's what it's like to be in this moment, just silent and attentive. And having been relieved of all responsibility, but to be with yourself, which is a huge one, it's one that apparently very few people in this race called the human race want to do. Because if people did it, the planet wouldn't look the way it looks. But that's a political thing. We'll do that. Okay. It wouldn't. I mean, it's something that is difficult. I've forgotten who. It's it from Islam, one of the uh, great, uh, it might be the prophet himself, I don't know, uh, came back from the uh, holy wars of some sort. And he said, well, we finished with the minor holy war. If any of you know which, which one it is, let me know. Uh, now let's get on with the major holy war. The major holy war is yourself. That's where the problem is. Okay, so this simple, just sitting there, uh, you're taken away all kinds of supports, everything. Uh, What kind of an attitude do we need here? One Chinese teacher uh, put it, the best method is the method of the baby. Uh, Of all the many methods, the baby method is the best one. It means be like a baby. You have no opinions yet. You have no likes and dislikes and uh, Maybe I'm romanticizing babies. I don't. <laughs> but, uh, 
but let's say there's, in this uh, practice, words like naive, innocent are good words. They've come to be not so good words in the modern world, sort of like you're a sucker, if you're innocent, you're naive, uh, people just take advantage of you. Oh, it's a good person, but so naive, you know. Uh, here it's good. That means you're looking at something and you've at least temporarily left all your baggage behind. What that, and that's not easy to do. And learning the art of observation, many people think that that's a piece of cake. I don't think it is. I think learning the art of observation is the heart of what we're learning here. And it's a really highly refined art to really, how do you observe something? And part of why it is difficult, if you've experienced it as such, is because we've had so much practice doing things, uh, operating on life in certain ways. Uh, everything is a means to an end. Our minds are very calculated, calculating. And so everything is, we're, we're used to solving problems and fixing things. And it's hard to just let something be. Just let it be and uh, allow it to be there and to just meet it in an innocent way, to receive it without any separation. That's nice when it's a bird, but how about when it's fear? Not so easy, as we know, or loneliness. And you may not feel ready to do that just now, but the day will come where if you want to be free, I think you have to face those. They live inside of us. How could you be free with them chained up in your unconscious? It makes no sense. Uh, and something that gets learned here is, uh, finally, it's, it's about making friends with ourselves. We're our own worst enemy and we can be our own best friend. And we're learning how to do that. Uh, you c and to do choiceless awareness, or if you're interested in self-knowing, self-knowledge, uh, it has to be completely unrestricted. If you want to know yourself, you can't say, well, I sort of want to get to know myself. I want to get to know X, Y, and Z, but not A, B, and C. Well, that's not self-knowledge. That's what we're already doing. It's very, very selective. Okay, so <clears throat> you're all welcome to do that tomorrow in the sitting. Um, right after breakfast, there'll be um, some guided meditation, which will be available for you if you like to do some choiceless awareness. And it's not something that you have to do forever. You can get some experience with it. If it's not working out, if you're getting caught, and we'll go into all of that, uh, psychologizing, thinking, analyzing, the mind goes out of focus, just come back to the simple breath. Fine-tune your mind, your attention, and then you can always come back to it. You can do it with the breath as an anchor. And at some point you feel like it, you can even let go of the breath as anything special. And just, just be there and see what happens. Um, This uh, free and easy. Does everyone everyone knows that the copies of it are uh, under, near the bulletin board? This uh, uh, Vajra song by Lama Gendun Rinpoche. Uh, I don't know the, this man, and I must to begin with apologize to him because uh, what I'm going to say, I don't know Dzogchen. I just did a one-month retreat of Dzogchen. That's all. Uh, so all I'm going to be doing is reading his words and 
responding to them as I hear them. And if I do a disservice to the Dzogchen tradition, I'm not meeting this as a scholar who's giving a, a learned commentary on it, so much as these words have been very helpful for a lot of people, people who, don't, who know nothing about Dzogchen, including me. And so I'm using it in a way as an excuse to uh, reflect and uh, put some ideas out about the flavor of this kind of practice. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. The whole teaching is right there. I mean, we don't even have to bother with the rest of the poem. If we, we could just stay on that and, and work that out. But we'll just uh, begin to open that up and then move from that. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower. Do you believe that's true? Is that convincing? Well, what's the out? What, what do you do then? What is it? Siesta time? Sit under a tree? Go on welfare? I mean, what? what I think all of us, probably, uh, I, I'm, I'm good chance of it, have been brought up to work hard uh, and to be successful, and that happiness comes from success, and that uh, that happiness is not handed to you, but actually you you work for it. Uh, and if you are skillful and apply yourself and use a lot of willpower, uh, you can shape life in such a way that you can have some happiness. And obviously, there's a lot of truth to that. The point is, there are all kinds of happiness. That is not an ultimate kind of happiness. So it doesn't mean that you've, you're totally uh, deluded, you should give up your job, uh, your family, and everything else. It's, it doesn't mean that. But if we're seeking happiness uh, through this uh, willful uh, attempt to accumulate things, uh, what is being gotten at here is not only that the, the kinds of happiness that come from that are perishable, that is, they arise and pass away. So even if they do bring some happiness, they don't la- that kind of happiness doesn't seem to last. Moreover, this is a manual for the ego to fatten itself up. I mean, what is willpower? I can do it. I will do it. Okay, so it's saying... That isn't where you find happiness, through great effort and willpower. Does that mean you don't need any effort? That makes no sense. Uh, I'd like to introduce a term that I've stolen from Corrado, with his kind permission. Uh, it's a title of a book he wrote in Italian, but since he's not going to get it translated, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds much better in Italian, actually. It sort of sounds like an opera. <laughs> but in English, it's, uh, it's a viewing uh, choiceless awareness. You could say even our whole style of practice, but for the moment, I'm giving it a more limited meaning. Choiceless awareness as a kind of um, quiet passion. Um, this kind of work, let's say, to, to sit and to allow your experience to uh, surface uh, without directing it, to meet it in an intimate and direct way. Uh, 
you can't do that uh, without tremendous interest and passion. Tremendous. Uh, you have to be on fire to really do this practice. I don't know if you know that. It isn't just a casual thing. You sit down, in, out, in, out, in, out. You can do that, but it is very often happens after five years when you're not enlightened, that's the end of it. Move on to Tai Chi or whatever is next. It's a quiet passion in that, in a certain way, you know, let's say if someone walked in, you know, who doesn't know anything, doesn't know what's going on here, it looks like a bunch of lazy people, you know, just uh, moseying around, you know, <laughs> uh, drinking water and tea and, you know, sitting quietly, uh, uh, Yet, there's a fire going on, the passion is inside, but it's not, uh, it's subtle, it's very refined kind of passion, and the more the practice develops, the more refined and subtle it becomes, the more natural it becomes, but without keen interest. Uh, how can you do anything worthwhile in life? So, of course, energy is needed, tremendous energy. Now, my own feeling for my my practice and the practice now of so many people that I've observed in a number of different traditions is that we start uh, uh, our Dharma practice with tremendous will and ego and uh, we do expect uh, happiness from great effort and willpower. We do. Uh, and that's only natural and normal. How could we be doing what I'm starting to talk about. Let's say from day one, if you walked in and someone said, just sit down. And uh, Actually, uh, Munindra, who's told this to a number of us, uh, when I first met him, who's an, a teacher from India, this was many years ago, my first Vipassana teacher, he said, why do you want to practice Vipassana? I said, I, I really want to understand myself. Uh, I said, uh, you know, I think I've lived in certain ways that have not uh, proven to be uh, 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 wise, and I would like to understand myself. He said, okay, sit down and take a look. <laughs> That's it. He's right. Now it's uh, over 20 years, and uh, that's it. But, you know, that looking, ooh, you know, it's quite a, not only a journey, but an adventure that, uh, of constant refinement. It, uh, now, to begin with, I'll, I'll speak, you know, if this doesn't apply to you, fine. Most of us, uh, are when we come to this, let's say we've been wounded in life and we see that we've been hurt in relationship, we've been hurt at the university, we've been hurt in, in the world of business, things aren't what we had hoped they would be. Uh, and we crawl into IMS or some other place with initials. You know, and uh, we, re we read these books which uh, promise you know, fantastic endings. Uh, and that's for me. I dropped out of the university to do it. I was a professor. I signed up for the trip. <laughs> Sign me up. I had no idea what I was getting into, not really. Um, we have to begin with, what we, with where we are, and where we are is a, a, a very self-centered person. Even if, let's say, you have low self-esteem, that's still an egomaniac. It's just a negative egomaniac. And then you've got your, I have very high self-esteem, fine. You're, you're having a little bit more fun, you're also an egomaniac. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 So, <laughs> okay. 
So then we, want, we come to spiritual practice and we hear all these things. Uh, isn't it about uh, creating an even bigger and better, it's self-improvement. It's uh, still within this, um, this uh, center that we've created known as me. And now the me is dissatisfied and it has found something much more attractive uh, and it goes after that. And the only way we know how to do things is what we, the way we've been doing it for all our life. We go after it. And I think you have to have energy like that. You know, when I first started teaching, I, was, I used to draw people out. Why are you meditating? What are your motivations? I read that. Or no, I studied with a Japanese teacher and he used to ask everyone what their motivations were. And then based on what it was, he would assign you to different groups. If you wanted enlightenment, you were in one group. <laughs> you got a high class method. If you were, you know, you just wanted to calm down, just give him a mantra, you know, <laughs> you, know, you know. And there was something for everyone. Okay. At a certain point, I realized this is silly uh, uh, because people don't, in our culture, it's so new, we, we need energy. We come for some reason. And as long, whatever got you in the door and got your butt on the cushion is fine uh, because it's going to change anyway. You'll either, you know, it's not for you and you'll leave or something starts to change inside of you and the motives that brought you there are not necessarily the motives that keep you there. In fact, th- th- that has to be transformed. Otherwise, uh, all it is, you're just going to be running around in circles and you'll get disillusioned. You'll see that you're no better off. Uh, it's just the ego camouflaged as a yogi. But it's the same thing, exactly the same thing, with a different look on the face and different clothing, Birkenstocks. Same, <laughs> same ego. Now it's going to be more selfless than anyone else. But the process, the dynamic is the same. How could it be otherwise? And I think a lot. this method of the choiceless awareness of allowing, it isn't the only way uh, to really go deeply. There are other methods which are much more direct, assaultive almost, competitive. And I, I hinted at a few the other night. You know, uh, there was a, a Zen center I practiced, practiced at, and I saw people uh, sat in different places and had different kinds of clothing, different, I don't know, I've forgotten what, ribbons or something. I said, well, those people who solved their first koan, they sit over here. Those people who haven't solved any koans yet, you know. <laughs> you know uh, when I grew up in the synagogue that I uh, we used to go to, you sat according to the donation you meant. So uh, you made. <laughs> so uh, my parents stood in the back, you know? <laughs> and uh, that was not a good feeling. Hi, ma. Hi, dad. Let's sit down. Uh, Oh, it just, we, we like to stand. <laughs> you mean you, get, you gave a donation of $5 is what you mean. Yeah. Uh, and you're urged on to practice. You're stirred up by your teacher with carrot and what's the stick. You know, uh, you can do it. Come on now. Uh, third day of the, what day is this of the retreat? Third day? Third day of the retreat. Only four more days left. It's Goenka style, right? Practice, practice, <laughs> practice. Not much time left. Yeah. And some people do well with that. I did at first. I really did at first because it was what I knew. It was just a continuation of graduate school. Just fe- feverishly, just, you know, tell me what hoop to, to jump through. I'll do it. Whatever it takes. 
uh, at a certain point, I felt that's why I left that. I don't want to live that way anymore. And so uh, I started to become attracted. I saw that there were other quieter, less in the short run, not as uh, flashy practices. This is one of them. This is not very flashy in the beginning. <laughs> It's a marathon. You have to have a marathon mind in this practice. And there aren't things like um, breaking through to, to... We don't encourage you to do certain very dramatic things or get dramatic states in order to uh, arouse energy. Yet you do need the energy. It's got to come from somewhere. Okay, now, when this, what I hear these words as, through great effort and willpower, uh, what he's saying is there, there is a certain, I would say, there is a certain kind of happiness that is available in life. And it's not to totally diminish it. Ordinary happiness, the happiness of having a nice home, of having adequate food, adequate clothing, medical care, those are just things that are, have to do with human dignity and, uh, and living. They're not to be demeaned. So there are certain kinds of happiness, and very often it does come from hard work and willpower and earning enough money, and so forth. We all know that. What, but this is pointing to something else. It says, happiness can't, the kind of happiness that he's talking about, I would say, uh, cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Uh, it's already present in open relaxation and letting go. That means that there is a kind of happiness that is right here in this moment. It's already, it's here at IMS. The path, we use that term, the path, uh, as if we're walking the path and then we'll get there. You are the path. I don't know if you know that. I'm, you're sitting on the path right now. It's you. The path is just wherever you are, however you are in that place. And it's a way of relating to that uh, living quality that uh, expresses itself over and over and over again. So that means there's something here, right now, that is already our happiness. It's not something that's constructed. It's not a seed that grows. Sometimes images like that are used. If anything, what it is, it's uncovered. One image would be the blue sky, the vast blue sky. It's there. But if it's uh, overshadowed by clouds, you don't know it's there. And so uh, when the clouds fall away, or you peek through the clouds, or you fly in a plane that's higher than the clouds, you can see an extraordinary thing, just vast, clear blue sky. It's wonderful. It's a metaphor, an ancient one, for what this is getting at. In our own case, uh, the kilesas, greed, hatred, delusion, and all their children, different variants of greed, hatred, and delusion, uh, are blocking our view. You know, the, the, the space is not accessible to us. The clear blue sky is not accessible to us because we're so caught in all the different cloud formations that come by that we identify with and take to be me. And then we try to get better clouds so that we'll be happier. We're working within that same range. Let's say it's a bit like, uh, you know, if, I, don't, I haven't done, yeah, if you do the loop, I don't know, if you go all the way around just beyond the lake, going this way, that, wherever, uh, there's a dog that runs for quite a distance, really barking vigorously, and then suddenly you realize it's on a chain, 
and then it's and it seems it's very aggressive and uh, and when the first time it's sort of whoa here comes trouble and then it runs and it's really behaving as if it's somebody and then suddenly <laughs> then there are other dogs they have just like two feet you know woof woof and then they just go here and then they, they their uh, tether their tether is much shorter they're both prisoners one might be more deluded and think at least has you know 30 seconds of pretending that it's free <laughs> you know okay when we operate from this center uh, known as me and we try to get happy and we try to do it by getting things including uh, to use Trungpa's beautiful term accurate term spiritual materialism that is he has an interesting use of it that is the ego is so frightened of awakening because uh, the awakened mind is a silent mind, and who's the big noisemaker? And there's no room for that noisemaker in silence. Okay, so the ego, being brilliant, uh, just uh, uses that same ego dynamics, but on spiritual materials, and we, being goofy, fall for it. And so we we replay the same old drama, only using spiritual materials, and we don't realize it for quite a while because. The, the materials are officially spiritual. The clothing, the manners, the habits, the this, the that. Uh, it's, a whole, it's a whole dramaturgical creation. And if you see through it, you realize that you can be as materialistic in robes or out of robes, on Wall Street or on No Street. Uh, and so here, uh, what we're... We, we, we're not in touch with this happiness because we're looking in the wrong place. Sometimes some people are looking for perfection and they're looking for it in another person, perhaps uh, in a woman or a man or in a, in a field of interest or a house or a car or a career or uh, anything. We're looking for that perfection. But it's not there. You can't find it there. It's like you're trying to find the perfect cloud and maybe you find some clouds are beautiful and white, and other ones that you know, kind of dark and threatening, but it won't last. That cloud disappears. And so, what he's saying is, we already have this happiness, but obviously, we wouldn't put ourselves through sitting through all this heat and so forth if we had real, sustained access to it. We don't. Uh, I'd like to uh, uh, finish up tonight. We're going to, uh, of necessity, you have to move into silence. We call it a quiet passion. It's not only that the way you do it is unassuming or quiet, but it's also a lot of that passion is in silence. That is, it's tapping silence, and then there's a passionate way to live that silence, to experience it, to allow it to live through you, to live you, to nourish you. And... We all have a very, very hard time with silence. I, I can't say all, but most people that I meet, um, even people with very, very deep practices suddenly come up against uh, real silence and uh, get on their bicycle and go in the opposite direction. It's something, that, uh, it's, it's something that we have to understand. I've tried hard to understand it from a cultural point of view because maybe some of the preliminary understanding of why uh, we have such a complicated relationship with silence. Uh, uh, the culture doesn't really 
uh, acknowledge it in certain external ways it does. Like we all, it's nice to live on a quiet street. It's nice when the refrigerator stops, you know, suddenly and, oh, you know, or the kids turn the TV off. Oh, what a relief. No more commercials. Uh, and we know on a holiday or lying in a hammock, we feel more peaceful and quiet. But uh, this quiet, uh, there's a long ways to go. Uh, I just want to put this on your mind, and we're going to go more deeply into it uh, in a few evenings. I found this very, very helpful. It's from um, a man named John Corigliano. He's an American composer. He did the music for um, The Red Violin, a new film that came out. And uh, he's done some very beautiful compositions. I've heard some of them. Uh, and he just about never, uh, he made one music, background music for one film, and then hasn't done anything since, and was interviewed in the Christian Science Monitor a couple of weeks ago. And this is just part of what he said. Corigliano's understanding of film composition includes a healthy awareness of when not to inject a musical element, when not to have musical in the movie. This is him speaking now. I really love a spare use of music, he says, just in the right places, rather than having lots and lots of notes. Music is a wonderful tool for building tension and carrying things forward. But today, we have it everywhere, in stores, in elevators, all over the place. We use it as a drug that makes us feel we're not alone. So we forget how fabulous silence can be. Silence is a wonderful sound, too. Uh, I think anyone who's done any meditation understands this. Uh, and we'll uh, go into that uh, with more, in more detail because in a certain sense, a lot of what we're learning is how to enter into silence, how to taste it, become more familiar with it, to lose any fear of it, to understand it's a, uh, a normal and extraordinarily beneficial uh, aspect of human life, that to cut that off, uh, it would be as artificial to just live in silence, to cut off thinking and words and action. It's part of a whole. A whole person includes silence. Uh, and the challenges and the obstacles that face us and how uh, choiceless awareness uh, is a very gentle way uh, to relax into awakening. It's not breaking the door down. It's sort of just relaxing into awakening, but you really have to relax. And you have to stay highly alert in that relaxation. Uh, and sooner or later you have to come to terms with your particular relationship to silence. Okay, let's do some walking meditation. Let's have a moment of silence speaking. If anything is worth retaining, let it seep in. Let's do some walking, please.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.